Hear this word from Psalm 149, verse 4. The Lord takes pleasure in His people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let us pray. Our good and our holy God, we thank You for this day. This day You've given us to celebrate Your grace, to give You thanks for the bounty of Your love. Lord, we're grateful that You love us and that you delight in beautifying our lives in your world with your gift of salvation we pray lord today that you would speak to us we pray that you would give us hearts that are tender to receive your word that you'd grant us feet that would walk quickly to do your will or we pray that you'd make our hands strong that our work in this world would be as your own And we pray that a word of life and hope and grace would be found on our tongues. Lord, we give you praise and thanks. And we say we love you. We can say this because you loved us first. Lord, thank you. Thank you in the strong name of Jesus. We pray in his name, saying together, amen and amen. Friends, please be seated. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. I read those words uh, a while back and I was struck by them. I was struck by the fact that God is a God of people. That God is, is, is drawing to himself a group of people, a group of people to love. That God is a God of pleasure, that he takes delight in certain things. And the things that that God takes delight in are wonderful things. He takes delight in life. He takes delight in hope. He takes delight in forgiveness and grace and mercy and kindness. We have a God, uh, our God is a God of pleasure and delight. We have a God of salvation. A God that's at work in this world doing something beautiful and significant. Christian people often talk about salvation, and one of the aspects about it that I think is missed most often is just how beautiful, just how beautiful it is. For the next three weeks, leading up into the Advent season, uh, we were going to have a doctrinal sermon series on the doctrine of salvation. And some of you have just said, my, I'm checking out for three weeks. That sounds dry as dust. Doctrinal preaching and doctrinal thinking and and, and dealing with the truths of Scripture and the truths of our faith couldn't be any further from dry and dusty. Theology ought to be beautiful because its subject matter is so beautiful, Clark Pinnock said. And God, God is beautiful. And salvation is is beautiful and it's important for us to deal with doctrinal issues because everybody does doctrine everybody's doing it you're a theologian whether you know it or not you either do it purposefully and thoughtfully and scripturally and in conversation with our brothers and sisters that have walked faithfully with God for thousands of years Or are you just sort of making it up on your own? 
but you're doing theology. There's a new television show out. It's titled The Good Place. Have any of you seen the pilot episode of The Good Place? It's not really about heaven and hell. It's about the good place and the bad place. Ted Danson stars in it and Christian Bale. And in the first episode, she winds up accidentally in the good place. You see, she knows she's lived this wretched life. She's a mean, mean-spirited woman. And she wakes up and she is in the good place. And she's dumbfounded by this whole deal. And she meets in the office of Ted Danson. Ted Danson is the one who gives the orientation for the good place. And she's asking him all kinds of questions about where she is and what has happened. And he says, you have died. And you are in the good place. And she knows something's wrong. She knows something's wrong. But she doesn't want to blow her cover, so she doesn't say anything about that. Uh, But she asks him questions about the good place. And she says to him, who's right about this stuff? Who's right about this, all of this stuff? And he said, well, all the religions, they're all about, you know, 5% accurate. The Jews, the Christians, the Hindus, they all get about 5% of it right. And he said, but there's one guy. There's a guy named Doug Forsett. And Doug, after eating hallucinogenic mushrooms, got it 92% correct. And he pointed to a picture of Doug Forsett. And he looked like this haggard kid who was living in his mama's basement who spent all his time playing World of Warcraft. Uh, And there's Doug just staring back out of that picture. And and he says, Doug is something of a hero around here. He got it 92% right. And I was dumbfounded by the whole deal. But it just sort of highlighted the fact that everybody does doctrine. Doug Forsett in his mama's basement is thinking about ultimate things. And if you get with Doug around the campfire, he'll talk about that stuff for hours. All of you have met Doug sometime in your life. We're prone to invent things and create things because the ultimate questions of life are questions of life. And we all think about these ultimate things. And without a careful Christian doctrine, we're just thrown from here to there, chasing every wind. In fact, Paul warned about this in the book of Ephesians. Uh, In the fourth chapter of Ephesians, he talks about maturing and growing in faith, coming to a settled place, and he says, without this, you see this in Ephesians 4, 14, without maturing and following Christ, you're tossed by every wind of doctrine. As Christians, we learn to think doctrinally because we don't want to be tossed by every wind that comes from the mouth of guys like Doug Forsett. We don't want to just make this stuff up on our own as we go along. In Spurgeon's day, there were many people, just as in ours, who say, hey, we would have a lot more peace in the churches if we didn't care so much about doctrine. He said, let's just sing and pray. People were saying, let's just sing and pray uh, and, and fellowship and get together, and let's not get caught up in all these doctrinal matters. Let's just be fuzzy and warm, and let's just all get along. And Spurgeon said that that's a lot like a man who gets in a ship without any charts 
and heads to a land that he doesn't know where it is. He said, it's fine for a while, but ultimately you need some charts. And that, that captain with no charts ultimately ends up with a wrecked ship. And so friends, for a few weeks, I want us to talk about the doctrine of salvation. But I want it to be beautiful because the subject matter is so beautiful. As a kid, I was raised in a church much like this one. I was rocked in the cradle of the Baptist church. My kids were born in a Baptist hospital. We're Baptist people. And I remember sitting around those Sunday school tables as a child and, and having these wonderful men and women, much like some of the people I'm looking at now, who love my, my life toward Christ and love my kids toward faith. And, and they would talk about the doctrine of salvation. Just a few weeks ago, I was invited to our children's Sunday school class to talk about this teaching. And friends, this teaching is not a teaching for children, even though it's a teaching for children. But it's a teaching for all of us. And it's beautiful. And when the Bible speaks of salvation, the Bible talks about the work of God in the life of a believer that is past, present, and future tense. And that's the progression of the sermons for the next three weeks. A Christian, someone who knows and loves Christ, can look back in their life and say, I have been saved. We'll focus on that this morning. A Christian that's maturing in their relationship with God can speak of being saved because of the mercy and the kindness of God and the work of the Spirit and the Word in their life. And we can speak and we can sing and we can declare with hope that one day we will know the fullness of our redemption. We can speak of being saved one day without the fetters of sin and shame any longer. We can, we can proclaim in hope that we indeed will be saved. Three weeks, beautiful salvation, past, present, and future tense. Today we begin in Ephesians, and I would encourage you this week to read the whole book of Ephesians. You can do it in one sitting, uh, and let it nourish your heart. But today we look at the testimony of believers, testimony of people whose lives have been touched by the mercy of God, who are bearing witness in chapter 1, verse 13, it says this, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You hear this testimony and you hear this rhythm of past, present, and future and the kindness and the mercy of God. He goes on to talk about praying uh, and he prays for them to have spiritual wisdom that their hearts would see and that their eyes would see and their ears would hear. In chapter 2, he talks about grace through faith culminating in this verse, verse 9, for 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Here, Paul is writing this church. 
He's writing to people who have made a, a deep profession of faith. Uh, they've committed their lives to this resurrected Messiah that they're preaching all over the world. They've been touched and changed by the mercy of God, and he's writing to them about their common life together, about their individual walks with God. He's calling them to a greater maturity and focus. And he reminds them from the very beginning about what God has done in their life, about the world as it is looked at through the lens of Jesus, the Savior, about what it means to live a life with God in Christ. He highlights good news and bad news and good news again, and that's what we'll do for just a moment. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, talks about the original beauty and the plan and the purposes of God. Uh, and you, you begin by reading in, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9, about a plan, uh, the plan of the mystery of God that is being revealed in the world, that, that people are coming to understand what has been going on in the heart of God and in, the, in God's world from the very beginning, this, this, this language of God's plan. In chapter 3, verse 11, it talks about the eternal purposes of God. So we learn from Ephesians that God is a God of plans and that God is a God of purpose. God made you for a reason. God made us for a purpose. He gave life to humanity not because he was needful of buddies. I've heard people say God was lonely so he made himself a man. God was fine without us. God was fine. God was alive and full of joy and ecstasy without us. You were not created because of some deficiency or loneliness in God's being. You were created because God is a giver. And out of the ecstasy of God's own being, He gave life. And to that life, he gave design and purpose. He gave hope and plans. You are made for God. You are made by God. Colossians says you were made for Christ. You were made by Christ. It all begins with good news. When you read those opening narratives in the Bible, it was good, it was good, it was good, and it was very good. To understand salvation, you must understand that God is a God of purpose and plans and that God has a design for your life, every aspect of it. You were created to have a relationship with Him. You were created to have healthy relationships with one another. You were created to do meaningful and valuable things with your life. You were created to have a certain relationship with the world. God is a God of purpose. And God is a God of plans. And understanding salvation, we must begin there. Uh, Chip Conyers, in his section on salvation, in his little theology, he asked this question. What is the best that can be hoped for in human life? That's the first sentence he wrote introducing, introducing this idea of God being a saving God. What, what's the vision of life that God offers us? The relationships that he offers us with himself and with others. It begins with good news. 
But here's the deal. You woke up this morning, you had a cup of coffee, you picked up that little computer that's in your hand most of the time, and you read. And you didn't read good news, did you? You didn't. You got text messages and emails all week long. How many of them were just dripping with good news? 60-40? How about yours? I, I, I'm not going to read you mine. I'm not going to read you the ones you sent me. That'd be embarrassing. <laughs> you know. You have a, a hunch. You may be starting to think. This isn't how things are supposed to be. The good news story of God in this world turns into a, oh man, something has happened here. Philosopher Cornelius Plantica wrote a a little essay, The Brevery of Sin, and he begins it with a line from the 1991 movie Grand Canyon. You might remember that movie. Old Danny Glover, he comes up on the scene, he's a tow truck driver. And it's a tough scene of an urban situation. And he comes in there and he, and he just says, everything's supposed to be different than what's here. When you read the paper, when you check your email, don't you just sense in your heart of hearts, everything's supposed to be different than this. Friend, that's, that's the old biblical concept of sin. We took God's, God's design and God's plan and God's purpose for all of us and we said, no, we can do better than that. We can do better than that. And in grasping for better than that, we lost what God offered us at the very beginning. The good news gets dark. But here's the beautiful part. It gets beautiful again. It begins good, it gets bad, and then there's this great good news remix, if you will. There's this good news, part one and two, all in the same thing. And that's what Paul calls in Ephesians the truth and the gospel of your salvation. And all through this letter, well, we can go the whole letter. Maybe just the first two chapters. In the first two chapters, he talks about what God has done in Christ for these people and for those who would follow their example of receiving a gift that God has offered. He talks about people who heard the word and responded in trust and in faith and obedience. He talked about what that meant. He gave a bucket load of beautiful, beautiful images of what it means to experience the saving grace of God in a world that's not supposed to be like this. And if you brought your number two lead, I'll give them to you quickly so you can go home and and just thank God for each and every one of them. I'll do it rapidly, but write them down. Uh, He talked about about us, uh, those of us who have trusted in Him as being adopted by God. Chapter 1, verse 5. This is one of the the very first images uh, of our salvation in Scripture, that we were adopted. You ever been present for an adoption? Have you ever seen it? 
Have you ever been around a, a person as they say, I'm celebrating the gotcha day? The day that you came into my home, into our home, and you became like blood of my blood and bone of my bone. I'll never forget being in a rural Texas courthouse uh, when that judge looked at Luke and Nikki Stokes and said to them, now you're going to keep these boys forever? And soberly they promised before God and their friends and a judge in the state of Texas in a courthouse where they used to hang people. They said yes. And the gavel fell and it fell hard and tears rushed out of my eyes because in that moment, in that moment, there was a living, breathing picture of what it means to be embraced by a God of salvation love. Yes, forever. Forever. We're family forever. Yes, forever. Paul wrote of adoption. Paul wrote of redemption. And this is a big old fancy theological word. You say, man, don't spend any time on this. I don't want to think about theology. You've been thinking about redemption all of your life in so many different aspects. My kids are crazy about claw machines. You know what a claw machine is? You put quarters in. And they have fuzzy bears, and they have fuzzy frogs, and they have all these little things. And you have to manipulate a claw arm to try to extract these bunnies and these bears and these frogs. It's winning. It's like kitty gambling is what it is, really. Uh, I hope I'm not going to have to pull them out of some Vegas or Biloxi place someday because they love these claw machines. Because of, they love these claw machines, I've been in a whole lot of, uh, of what I call token uh, ticket trinket joints you ever been to a token ticket trinket joint it's where you give your money and you get tokens and that's so you lose count of how much money you've given them so you get more tokens and they go and they spend these tokens and they win these tickets and you take these tickets and you buy trinkets with them i was in one of these uh tokens tickets trinket joints one time and i walked up there and i saw this big sign and it said redemption center I thought, they got a small Pentecostal church over in the corner of this place. <laughs> I said, no. That's where you take your tickets to get your trinkets, having spent your tokens. Talking about a little kid, you know? Seven, six, five-year-old kid with a handful of tickets. And they see that little bear up there in that plastic bucket looking so lonely. And that kid thinks in their mind, that bear doesn't need to live in that plastic bucket. That bear needs to come home with me so that I can love that bear. I can hang on to that bear. You think, Matt, don't, don't, don't think this, uh, this sentimentally about teddy bears. Try to take a teddy bear from Martin Starr. He'll cut you. He still loves every teddy bear he ever had. It's because God puts love in our heart. We're created in His image. And we think that way when we're, we're little. The Redemption Center. <laughs> the Redemption Center is so rich and beautiful when it comes to God and us. Our salvation wasn't free. It was costly. It was costly because we were broken and sinful and in great need of somebody to cut through all that to bring us to God. And God himself wanted us. Wanted us. And came for us to bring us 
home. You heard the word and you trusted. You were adopted. You were redeemed. Chapter 1, verse 7, you were forgiven. You feel guilty, friends, because you're guilty. And I'm guilty. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray and, and we've made a wreck of things. There's a selfishness to us. We're culpable, but we're also captives. And God came to, to set us free from that. And he also came to forgive us. Forgiveness. Union with God, chapter 1, verse 10. This is an image of drawing near and, and having been brought close. Chapter 1, verse 11, that we obtain an inheritance. He says, you have obtained an inheritance. This is a family issue. I had a grandfather I didn't know very well. My grandfather had some challenges after the war, and, and my grandmother and grandfather got divorced. And in, in Mississippi, in those, in those years, that was a big deal. My grandmother moved in with my great-grandmother, and, and my grandfather uh, I, I saw once a year at Christmas time. My buddy Tyler called him 50 bucks at Christmas. He wanted to, to love us, but he really didn't know how. I got word when he died that he had left me a small inheritance. I could have cared less about the money. It's all gone, and it was gone long ago. But even in that broken relationship, it was a little symbol of something. A little frazzled something, but something. And here is, here's the creator of the universe. The creator of all. Saying to a sinful humanity, I'm preparing something for you. For you. Salvation is beautiful. It says in chapter 2, verse 13, that we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. That God in Christ gave his own life. And the emblem of, of his life was that blood that we sang about today. And God gave his very best to a broken, rebellious world so that we could be brought near. The world's not supposed to be this way. But it is because we live far from God. Doing it on our own. And salvation says, no, no. God wants to bring you close. Chapter 2, verse 16. There's this language of reconciliation to be reconciled to God. One of Jesus' most famous stories was about the prodigal son. I have one of those, one of those little Rembrandts uh, of the return of the prodigal that Henry Nowen wrote so beautifully about in my office. Just to remind me of the heart of the Father. Uh, and Jesus said God celebrates when his children are, are brought back home. And he hugs us and he puts his clothing on us and he puts a ring on our fingers and shoes on our feet. We're far, but, but God in his, in his bounty and His love comes to bring us back. The eighth, and we'll get ten, uh, is in chapter 2, verse 19. Uh, when, we're, when we're brought into salvation, we're made fellow citizens with the covenant people of God. Now, this is one of those weeks where you wish you weren't a citizen, but you are. 
And you all understand citizenship and the value of it. You understand what it means to be part of a reign, a system of governance. You understand what, it, what the responsibilities and the rights of, of being a citizen are. And the gospel says, when you hear the word of truth and respond in trust, you become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Yes, you vote in McLennan County, but your ultimate allegiance and citizenship is with God. You're part of his reign. And you come to know the rights and responsibilities of living under his reign. As part of that. These images are beautiful images. But you're not just a subject, friends. You're a child. You're a child of this one that we call the king. In that same verse, it says you are part of the household of God. That you have a place at the table, at the banqueting table of God. You have a place because he's provided it. And the 10th and the last, and this dovetails with what we've preached for the last several Sundays. You're the temple. You're the temple of God. Chapter 2, 21 to 22. And the dwelling place of the Spirit. So when you take these 10 things and you look at them and you put them all together comes down to this salvation is not some television comedy theology where we're just trying to get more points than the next person or just coming to the end of it and having just fewer good points than bad points where there's some scale of demerits and achievements so that we can go to a place where we just get to fish and hunt and watch games where we win every time and never lose. Where we get our way in every way. Where heaven's about us. Where the good place is about us. The girl wakes up in the good place. She said, I can drink all the Chardonnay I want and never have a hangover. That's our vision of the good place. And it starts in ourselves. And all of these pictures of life with God are intensely relational. And they have God at the core. And we find that the good life, the saved life, the life worth living, uh, the life in all of its, in, in its abundance is found connected, deeply connected to God reunited with God and all of our pleasures are born out of pleasure in him and he takes pleasure in his people and he beautifies the meek with salvation you can't swagger around in this world inventing stuff on the fly hoping it shakes out in the end that's floating on the winds of doctrine and groping in the darkness. And what we have offered us in Scripture and for thousands of years of Christian witness is a gift of life. Life in God. Life that Paul would say at one point, life that is really living. Is that, man, what do I do? 
How do I live that out? He said, friends, it's by grace. That means all of this is offered to you by God freely. He picked up the tab. He took care of it. He made provision. And he offers it to you as a gift. And the wise, humble response is to receive that gift and offer thanksgiving and offer the totality of your life knowing that your life can be found only in Him. Many of you have done that. But a lot of the time, you forget that the saved life is a life of gratitude and humility and love and thanksgiving and devotion. And just like everybody else, you're slugging through the world, taking names and making a name. He's offered you life all the way through and you can live it till you see him face to face some of you some of you have not received Christ you have not trusted him some of you are still unclear about what that means you can begin your journey with God today when we stand and sing you can come and talk to me and say, man, I want to I know more about this. Can, you got about 10, 12 hours? Yep. I sure do. As long as it takes. For as long as it takes. It's hard to understand this stuff because it's so beautiful. Sometimes it's harder. It's harder to receive when we know. Because it means we have to admit I can't do this on my own. And the last thing we want to admit is I can't do this on my own. But to the meek, he'll beautify your life with salvation. John chapter 3, Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, well-respected, wealthy. He said, you need me. In John chapter 4, he spoke to the woman at the well. Terrible reputation, nobody liked her. All by herself. Same message. You need me. I look around this room and everybody I see needs Jesus. And the good news is, He loves every single one of you. And has given His very best. God, thank you for the beautiful salvation that you have offered us in Christ. Lord, as we stand and sing a hymn of commitment, help us. Help us, Lord, to follow you the best we know how as you lead us. Lord, I pray for anyone here or watching by television or listening online. Lord, that may not know you, I pray that, that they would begin a journey as they recognize that you're at work in their life. Lord, help us to be mindful of our friends and our, our co-workers, our neighbors, the people we, we meet. Lord, help us to be mindful 
uh, to share the reason for the hope that was within us. Lord, renew all of our faith and trust in you. Today we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing as David leads us.